It's 2016, and in a small village in Vietnam, just an hour and a half north of the capital Hanoi, several men are seated in a circle within a small street-side cafe. <laughs> two of these men are Chinese, while the rest are Vietnamese. One of two of the Viet's can speak Mandarin. The conversation flows. <laughs> they laugh and joke. The mood is friendly. And why wouldn't it be? They have all just agreed on an illegal but profitable transaction for half a ton of African elephant ivory worth 350,000 US dollars. From the Wildlife Justice Commission, this is Wildlife Kingpin, The Rise and Fall of Arnhem. Episode 1. An indication that somewhere in Kenyan forest, six elephants had definitely lost the battle Africa to the porches. And be smuggled out of Thailand through we Laos. Need better law people are the cause of this serious threat to wildlife, and people must be the solution. The Wildlife Justice Commission was created as a non-governmental organisation, or NGO. Its specific aim was to combat transnational networks engaged in wildlife trafficking. My entire career has been focused on how do we protect the vulnerable in society. Olivia Swart Goldman is the WJC's executive director. A legal practitioner in both the United States and Europe, she led the task force at the Office of the Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. In the past, I spent doing international criminal law, laws of war, genocide. It's all fine and well to sign these agreements, but how do we get governments to enforce them when there are reasons for them not to? So how do we develop the political will and hold governments accountable for not living up to their obligations? So for me, it was a very clear trajectory from international criminal law, laws of war, protecting the vulnerable in, in times of armed conflict and other forms of conflict to the Wildlife Justice Commission. So the original idea was we have to do something. We're losing these species. We cannot wait any longer. The governments that could be doing something on the ground aren't doing it. And the governments that perhaps have more capacity to take steps to address wildlife crime don't see it as they're in their interest to do it. It's not a political priority for them. So how do we bridge that gap? How do we fill that lacuna? The thought behind the Wildlife Justice Commission would be it would, it would be the mechanism to fill that lacuna. So what was planned is that the WJC would receive content from NGOs, which would show inaction by government, and that the WJC would then hold what was called a public hearing. But what we identified pretty early was that the level of material that we received from NGOs was not the sort of material that you could put before any sort of tribunal or court. Steve Carmody is the Director of Programs at the WJC, a former Australian detective with both the New South Wales and Australian Federal Police. He has over 30 years' experience investigating drug trafficking and gang crime. What we decided to do was go out and investigate our own matters and then present those to uh, law enforcement. But we found very quickly that if you could put product in a room, that law enforcement would react and, and facilitate arrests. So we followed that path and we've been quite successful at doing that. 
So the Wildlife Justice Commission began Operation Phoenix to look into the village of Nikkei. Probably most importantly was this was just a notorious hub for industrial trafficking of wildlife products. It was open, everybody knew about it. It was literally like going to a shopping center with just stall after stall after stall, you know, targeting a Chinese clientele. There were Chinese people everywhere. When I was there, a bus turned up and a whole heap of Chinese tourists, you know, jumped out of the bus and started going around to these shops. You know, there was one purpose and that was to go and buy wildlife. My biggest takeaway when I left Nikkei was the fact that, you know, in Africa, rangers and poachers were dying for products that were openly for sale. And there was a police station a couple of hundred metres away from where the products were on sale. It was, I was blown away when I saw Nikkei as open as it was. In the past, it was a, a village that used to craft timber for the, either the royal family in Vietnam or for, for wealthy buyers. You know, they would make things out of timber and they'd just turn that skill set to making things out of wildlife products. There were a lot of people that were just almost street-level traders. You, you know, you'd liken them to street-level uh, drug dealers and they were the ones that were, were offering the stuff openly on the street. This is Dave. He's a senior investigator for the WJC. His name has been changed to protect his identity due to the covert nature of his work. Dave is a former British law enforcement officer with over 20 years' experience working across four continents in the areas of drug and weapons trafficking, human trafficking and organised crime. Through our investigations and our dealings with people in Nikkei, we very quickly identified that a number of them had contacts in other parts of the world. A lot of them were doing business uh, with people in Laos, other parts of Asia, and some of them were dealing directly with um, suppliers in Africa. So we identified a major threat in the form of an organised crime group who were able to access large quantities of high-value wildlife products whilst also evading local law enforcement. Sarah Stoner is the Director of Intelligence at the WJC, a former police analyst from the United Kingdom. She has spent over 10 years working in the area of wildlife crime. So the intelligence we received on the ground in Vietnam led to a focus on a number of individuals and among them a trafficker known as Arnam. This meeting in 2016 was one of the WJC's earliest undercover missions, with the goal being to move past the retail end and up into the criminal supply chain. The WJC had undercover operatives that were able to directly engage some of Vietnam's most prolific traffickers of wildlife products. You know, there was a guy who went by the name of Chung Ha who operated out of Nikkei and he was the most prolific trafficker that we saw in Nikkei simply by the quantity of wildlife that he was trafficking. You know, there may be others there, Uncle Rhino Horn being one who's also a major player, but... Chung Ha was one of the Vietnamese traders at this meeting. However, across from him was one of his Vietnamese associates, a heavy-set but younger man. He didn't speak much at this meeting, but when he did, he spoke fluent Mandarin Chinese, perhaps the best out of all the Vietnamese present. This heavy-set trader was Arnam. So Nam had a very close associate called Arfong, who we identified to be his partner in most of his business dealings. And together they would facilitate the deals, they would take Chinese customers to sightings primarily of rhino horn and ivory in and around Hanoi. But Nam and Fong could both speak in Chinese and this put them you know, in a very advantageous position as brokers. 
The first step, as with any investigation, was sort of to build a profile on him, do what we call lifestyle observation. So we wanted to know all about him. We want to know where he lives. We want to know what car he drives. We want to know who his criminal associates are. We want to know where he likes to meet people. We want to know his MO, how he does business, uh, how money changes hands, and you know how he delivers products to, to customers. The investigation into Arnam soon progressed from criminal profiling to physical undercover deployments. You know, we had multiple Chinese undercover operatives contact Arnam. I think the knowledge of the legal wildlife trade is essential um, in infiltrating the organized wildlife criminal networks. This is Jimmy, an undercover operative working for the Wildlife Justice Commission. For obvious reasons, Jimmy's not his real name. I was invited to Vietnam, have the meeting with him in Hanoi. I remember that Afon came to meet me on the first day um, at a cafe. And we talked the usual stuff about the trade, about the products that we were looking at, we're discussing, and obviously beyond as well, whether Vietnam, Hanoi, just to build a good report with him. Anam didn't appear until much later, which we also identified later that Anam was of a higher ranking than Afong. So it made sense that Afong came out to meet me first and assess me. And um, only after he became comfortable, he introduced me further to Anam. Anam and his associate another Mandarin-speaking Vietnamese called A Phuong, met Jimmy in a public cafe in Hanoi. Surrounded by students and families, enjoying a milkshake or some bubble tea, the three men proceeded to look at Arnam's iPhone, which was a virtual catalogue of illegal wildlife products. I only remember the first meeting with Anand that he was very busy. Uh, he was constantly on his phone. He was answering phone calls all the time in our half an hour, 45 minute meet. And he was exchanging messages, sending voice messages all the time. And the other thing that really stood out to me about this pair was that they spoke relatively fluent Chinese and there was no issues for verbal communications and conversations, which also I realized later that it was one of the biggest advantages that they were so successfully uh, in the illegal wildlife trade in Vietnam is because their language ability to be able to link both the owners in Vietnam and the buyers in China. And we'll be sitting at tea houses and cafes for hours and whether talking about things or just simply sit there and get used to each other. Following one of these first meetings, Arnam and Afung took Jimmy to see 20 kilos of rhino horn. It was at a sort of a house, a little outside of Hanoi city center, a middle-aged male opened the door and there were a few other males, middle-aged um, Vietnamese male, inside the house on the ground floor. And one of them led me to upstairs where there was a smaller room and they took out, I think, a good eight to 10 pieces of large from rhino horns. It was all very open uh, to start with. They were, if our operatives uh, requested to go and view the product, you know, at the start of all this, uh, and show them the, these products. Show them the products uh, in situ, you know, m multi tons of ivory or, or big 
you know, big consignments of rhino horn. They were cut into half each horn, and I was told that this was to facilitate the transportation of these rhino horns from Africa to Asia through suitcases because they were so big that they don't fit in one suitcase, so they have to be um, chopped into two pieces. And I think a couple of them were even chopped into three pieces so they can fit into the suitcases. I fully understand that each horn potentially represents one life of rhino ended in the vast grassland in Africa, while in Asia, it was such a, it was just such a distant concept and idea that it was a, such a massive and, and a magnificent animal um, that was killed and slaughtered um, so far, far thousands of kilometers away in Africa. It was, it was definitely not easy to take in. During the time that the WJC were focusing on the wildlife hub of Nikkei, and identifying more senior players like Arnam, a watershed moment in the fight to save the world's most protected species occurred. Wildlife campaigners are applauding China's total ban on the commercial sale of ivory. The ban came into effect on New Year's Eve. So in 2017, China announced an ivory ban, and it was introduced at the end of 2017. And this had a massive impact on the trade, primarily because the the market for ivory just fell through the floor. You know, no one we were talking to in Vietnam after 2017 wanted to talk about ivory. They wanted to talk about rhino horn and pangolin and helmeted hornbill, particularly about rhino, but not so much about ivory because there's just no market anymore. And Despite new legislation that might curb the trade in wildlife products, Arnam did not show any signs of slowing down his business. One message on WeChat he sent to Jimmy in January of 2017 simply said, I have so much stuff, I'm just afraid you don't have enough money. I was diligently talking to him basically every other day, every week. We'll be exchanging messages, we'll be, we'll be having phone calls, we'll be discussing anything, you name it. Um, not only just the wildlife trade information, but also just daily life. He was quite trusting of his customers. He wasn't really taking precautions. He was, it was a show-off, you know, showing off his, his wealth. He'd be counting his money uh, publicly. He'd be driving around in, in posh cars, really nice high-end cars. He's a rubbish driver, by the way, but um, he, had, he had some nice cars. He didn't make our job too hard. You know, he, he met people at the same spot. So we could literally map his network by just doing surveillance at two coffee shops. He was fairly arrogant about, you know, about the way he did his business and you know, he just didn't take notice of people around him. So it made it quite easy to get in close to him. In the next episode of Wildlife Kingpin, some of them were dealing with suppliers in Africa. I saw 25 to 30 pieces of backhorns. They were using the blow dryer to dry them up to, to help reduce the smell. The place was quite hostile with one of the bags of rhino horn come out through the back and just disappeared in the alleys. Wildlife Kingpin is an original series brought to you by the Wildlife Justice Commission. Be sure to subscribe to this channel on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud. Music in this episode is from Kevin McLeod and sourced from Incompetech.com. To read more about the investigation into Arnam, you can visit the Wildlife Justice Commission website at wildlifejustice.org and download the full report, Arnam. The Downfall of Vietnam's Wolf of Wall Street. You can also learn more about the work of the Wildlife Justice Commission 
at their website or by following the organisation on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook.